The Water Values Podcast, Session 157. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining us. Have a great show for you today. Have uh, Oriana Brechker, who is the CEO and founder of AquaCycle, which provides BET treatment technology which is bioelectrochemical treatment technology for um, distributed wastewater applications and industrial pretreatment. Uh, she's going to give a great interview. It's fascinating stuff listening uh, to Oriana uh, uh, talk about all the different applications and, and things of that nature. So uh, she's going to give a great interview. We also have Reese Tisdale back with a Bluefield on Tap segment. Uh, and uh, Reese is going to talk with us about the California wildfires and the impact those fires are having on water utilities. Before we get to that, uh, as per usual, we have um, a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. The first thing, uh, I'd like to thank all of you who have given us five-star ratings recently on Apple Podcasts. We got a, picked up a bunch of them over uh, the last couple of weeks. We're now at 142 total ratings, um, and so it was it was great to see all those five-star ratings come in. Uh, we also picked up a couple of reviews. Two, 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 me too. Uh, gave a five-star rating and says water is essential to human survival. Using water ships is a brilliant solution for some of our global requirements. Partnerships are essential to addressing the problem at scale. Clearly. Tw- thank you very much. Two, 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 me too. I uh, really appreciate you um, leaving that great rating and review. Clearly they're also uh, talking about the recent interview we did with uh, Rocky Holiday about uh, the story of, of Watership Blue back uh, a couple episodes ago. So uh, check that one out if you haven't listened to it. And uh, again, 222Me2, thank you for the great rating and review. We'll get to the other reviews uh, in future podcasts because we do have a relatively long podcast today, so I want to get get right to it. So let's get to Reese Tisdale with our Bluefield on Tap segment. Well, Reese, welcome back to Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing? Dave, how about yourself? Things are good here. Yeah, things are great. Things are great. We're heading into uh, the the home stretch here before the holidays. So, oh god. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's it's just November first. Yeah. Well, the Home Depot here has had Christmas stuff up since I think September. So, you know, we've kind of been in the season already. Um, In in any event, what's uh, what what's on your mind? What's hitting What's hitting home recently in the water sector? As always, it goes without saying, a lot going on. I've been busy, been traveling. I think last time we talked, I was traveling, just got back from travel. Um, one thing, I guess, that's of note, um, California's back in the headlines. It's uh, it's on fire, and some people don't have water, um, yeah. which is, is, is one issue. I mean, I think what uh, it really ties to, as I mentioned, I was doing traveling, and I met with a group of utilities uh, it was a last week, maybe the week before. And one of the issues that came up was the cost of resiliency. That was one of their number one concerns, um, broadly speaking. And so a big part of the discussion throughout the day was, well, how do we, how do you deal with that? You know, there's, there's a cost of managing resiliency. Something's got to give. It's not like utilities and cities are flush with cash. And then this past week over the early past couple of weeks, We've been seeing these wildfires in California, and 
as a result um, and related to PG&E. And the uh, some utilities and cities have had to shut off water supplies. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you frame that up a little bit? Why why are wildfires and and either blackouts or uh, uh, you know let's say forced or unforced outages? Um, why are those uh, affecting water supply? Well, I mean, I like to call these you know black sky events. What happens when the grid goes down or critical infrastructure shuts down? There's just this collateral impact, and everybody seems to think, oh, my lights went out, I can't charge my cell phone, I can't charge my computer. Well, I mean, like anything else, these uh, these water supply or water utilities and wastewater system operators they rely on power as well. It's not a secret. I think we all do to some extent. And so they have to shut down. And so those that are relying on, in this case, PG&E, PG&E is now going around saying, hey, we're shutting down power. Could be for a day, could be for a couple of days. And so one example is Vallejo, which is just north of uh, north of Berkeley or north of, um, of San Francisco. They basically made an announcement earlier this week, we're having to shut off water supplies. And so what does that mean? It means that you don't have water and you can't, you know, shower, shave, you know, if they don't have water in the tanks and it's not a gravity fed system, um, then you've got a problem. So, yeah. So, so in, in your travels and in your discussions, what, what are kind of the solutions to this? I mean, you mentioned resiliency, but what does that mean? Yeah, I think, you know, look at the end of the day, call it what you want. It's, it's climate change related in the case of California. And it's not just California. We go back. I think we talked about hurricane Harvey, uh, was that a year or two, a year ago, where Houston, you know, they were overwhelmed by floods after the hurricane and their system shuts down. So what do you have to do? One, it starts with emergency planning and preparedness. I would say not all, all uti- not all utilities are prepared to do so. Um, I think there is an expectation that you're going to have power, um, but if not, you're no one's sitting around expecting wildfires, so you need to prepare for it in the case of California because there's a fuel supply on the ground. There are the Santa Ana winds, in some case, it's Santa Ana, the high winds, and, you know, there's a fire. So you get those three things and it blows up. So a lot of utilities, what we're seeing, I think Golden State's water, which is owned by American states, they talked about spending $10 million on backup generators just to keep their systems going. Cal Water, another investor in utility, had talked about spending several million dollars on backup generators. And I think in the case of Cal Water, they've had 62 outages, and they haven't uh, had to shut off water supplies at all for their customers. I think that's one aspect. Then the other thing that is a little scary, and it's a, a – uh, talk about biting your nose off to spite your face, and that is in some cases, and it's happened in the past where some of these utilities, they are the source of water supply for these firefighters. And so if if PG&E says we're shutting off water supplies and or we're shutting off power and the utility can't supply water to the firefighters, well, guess what? Your fire may be bigger. It may last longer. There may be greater day. So, that, you know, you have to weigh the – the, the benefits and the uh, and, and the cons, if you will. So it, it's a problem. It's a little scary, and I think that. But it gets into long term, long range planning, um, and how to manage this. Because I think a lot of the the and it depends state by state, right? What are 
the regulators, the utility commissions requiring the utilities to be prepared for. Yeah. Um, some states are better than others. Yeah. And, and you know, we've talked about, I think, combined heat and power at wastewater facilities in the past. But, you know, we've really never gotten into into power supply on the on the actually drinking water side. I know that there have been um, there's a, uh, out of Oregon, there's a, uh, an outfit that that generates power from uh, the flow of, of water in the mains, kind of right. kind of inline hydro. Um, so to speak, um, or do do you have any um, any thoughts on you know beyond what you've already shared in terms of where we might be heading uh, in in terms of uh, you know microgrids helping to keep the power on in these types of events for utilities or you know utility water you know utility owned power supply anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I've, we've looked at sort of on the wastewater side, energy capture on the drinking water side. I mean, they're basic things. I mean, if you have a footprint, there's always, whether it's enough to run your system and pumps, I mean, you can have solar generation and PV is as inexpensive as it's ever been. Uh, another uh, thing that we've looked at in the past is, and this is related to California, they've got these renewable portfolio standards, which are related to um on-site batteries, so sort of behind the fence or inside the fence, uh, battery uh, targets. And so Southern California Edison has signed battery, um, on-site battery agreements with uh, with a couple utilities in the state, which is interesting. You know, so you have on-site storage basically on the facility and there are ways to sort of better manage power, whether it be short, you know, even if there's a blackout, there could be a short-term um, coverage, at least for a power supply. I think in this case, you know, what you're talking about sort of inline flows, look, people need to be innovative. I mean, there's energy out there, and I think, you know, which utilities are, are innovative and willing to at least pilot, try try out these new systems because every little bit helps, um, you know, and I think, you know, even as a homeowner, we're in the same case when the power goes out. It sure would be nice about if PV panel on top of my roof so I could uh, burn my toast. <laughs> yeah, good deal. Well, uh, Reese, as always, you've done a great job on Bluefield on Tap. Thanks so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you next time. All right, Dave. Take it easy. See talk you. To Bye. Well, as always, Reese does a great job with Bluefield on Tap. The Bluefield Research folks do a great job with the Bluefield on Tap segment, filling us in on emerging trends, market information, all kinds of great stuff. So we really appreciate Bluefield Research coming on uh, once a month to give us a Bluefield on Tap update. It's now time for the feature interview with Oriana Brechker. Again, she is terrific. You're really going to enjoy this interview. Um, and she's just very knowledgeable, very good, good nature. You can just hear the, the sincerity come through when you're, when you're listening to her. Um, and so here we go with our feature interview with Oriana Brechker. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Oriana, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could join us today. Could you, uh, uh, for starters, tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So um, my name is Oriana Brechker, and I'm the founder and CEO of AquaCycle. And uh, my interest in water started very young. So I grew up in the Southwest, uh, Arizona and, and New Mexico, high deserts, uh, in some very rural areas that didn't always have um, direct running water or uh, 
flush toilets. So uh, got an interesting exposure to, you know, what it is like to, to live without those things at an early age. And that really stuck with me through life. Um, always been interested in science and engineering. And uh, after a little little while in, in aerospace, I ended up going back to school in Southern California. And I met my advisor. Uh, he, gave a, he gave a talk to the material science um, group. And he started talking about how microbes uh, have this ability to breathe rocks in the environment and generate electricity and, you know, have these abilities to um, convert toxic substances like chromium-6 into a non-hazardous chromium-3. All of these great things that really had a lot to do with, with water and, and how bacteria can be used in the environment for remediation and, and water treatment. And I just, I was just blown away. I never really took a biology class as a kid. And so, you know, hearing these things, I was just like, wow, it's amazing. So I, I begged him to take me as a student, um, and uh, thankfully he did. So I started uh, my research in this space, which is basically, you know, how can we use uh, uh engineered systems to select for different types of bacteria that have the capacity to produce direct electricity at the same time that they're consuming all of the waste organics that we want to get rid of in water. And um, that was 15 years ago and still doing it today. <laughs> well, that's a, that's, that's a fascinating story going from aerospace to, um, to wastewater treatment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not a typical route. Yeah. <laughs> very few of us, very few of us travel that road. Uh, tell us, tell us a little about AquaCycle and how, the, how, what's the basic process? Yeah. So AquaCycle provides on-site treatment. So, you know, we fall in the space for distributed treatment uh, to help avoid toxicity issues to the utilities that are operating downstream. So um, we offer the bioelectrochemical treatment technology, or BET, and our goal is to make wastewater treatment better. Um, and so with these plug-and-play modular package systems that we have, our BET units are installed in uh, essentially you know, your standard 20-foot or 40-foot shipping container. Uh, we bring that to a customer site, uh, and we address some of their higher-strength organic wastewaters. So we primarily work in the food and beverage industry. Um, you know, as you may know, um, you know, every gallon of beer results in four to six gallons of wastewater. Every barrel of wine results in five barrels of wastewater. And so, you know, the production of these wonderful products uh, also results in some very high-strength wastewaters. And what I mean by that is... Uh, very high organic load. So when you have high biological oxygen demand or chemical oxygen demand that then integrates into the sewer, um, it can cause some downstream problems to the utilities if they're not set up for that. So they will charge our customers higher surcharges per pound of their biological oxygen demand or total suspended solid. Um, or, you know, put some pretty strict uh, permitting limits on what the customer is allowed to discharge to the sewer. In some cases, we work with customers that are not connected to a sewer at all um, and cannot discharge this, this type of waste into a septic tank. And so they need some level of on-site treatment just to get the doors open. Uh, so those are, those are the type of customers that we work with. And our system comes in. 
Um, and essentially, we help them avoid those surcharges, um, stay within their permit limits, and enable uh, wastewater treatment on site for customers that really need it. Terrific. Now, you mentioned distributed wastewater. Um, what, what when you think of when you when you talk about distributed wastewater? What, because what, what I heard was uh, what, what at least in my world, what I call industrial pretreatment. Right. You know, so do you do you make, do you draw a distinction between distributed wastewater and industrial pretreatment or how, how do those sync yeah. up? I don't draw a distinction. To me, they're the same thing. OK, <laughs> um, but but that may not be true, um, you know, uh, in other with other folks that you speak to in industry. Um, but we do offer industrial pretreatment and it is a way of doing a, um, you know, a, a non-centralized process. Uh, for addressing these point source issues, right? So it's really both, um, in in my opinion. Um, and, you know, the, the point is really just to help everything that works downstream work more efficiently and without any toxicity issues or just be able to do treatment at all. So I, I, we, we kind of lean more toward the distributed um, definition when our customer is not connected to a sewer. Right. So if their only option is septic or, you know, hauling or land application, then that that treatment uh, package treatment plant that we provide gives them their own distributed treatment plant. When we're at a customer site that is tied to a sewer, we are really executing industrial pretreatment. Okay. Now, uh, I I, perhaps I should have asked this earlier, but uh, can you frame up for us how what you you know, so AquaCycle is a new or different, I shouldn't say new, you said it's been around 15 years. It's, 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 a, it's a different. <laughs> well, I've been around doing this for 15 years, yeah. but we are new as a company. We okay. launched in 2016. Okay, terrific. So b- before AquaCycle came along, how, what were the options or how, how is conventional treatment done? Uh, you know, so, so how, how, does, how does the AquaCycle bet um, process uh, differ from what has been done conventionally? Yeah. So um, I'll explain a little bit about what BET is and how it works and then, you know, why it's really very different from, from, from the other options. So what we, what we provide, right, within our package plants are little reactors that um, are about the size of a standard car battery. And we can pack 320 of these into a 20-foot container, 640 into a 40-foot container. And what these reactors do, so they're linked up in in, um, hydraulic series, and then we have multiple treatment trains of these reactors that will operate in parallel to accommodate volume. Inside of these reactors, what we're doing is creating an environment to select for microbes that have the capacity to use the surfaces inside of the reactor as a way to breathe. There's a way to respire. So we, uh, when we're doing an enrichment or we're in the startup phase of the system, what we do is we'll source the wastewater that we want to treat. And if we're on a customer site that already has a, a treatment plant or, you know, is connected to a sewer, we'll actually sample on their outflow. Grab the highest diversity of microbes we can get that, you know, has been exposed to the wastewater that they're generating. We put this wastewater into our reactors and the microbes that are there start to form fixed films or biofilms on the conductive surfaces inside of each reactor. And as they're doing that, right, they're using that surface as a way to discharge electrons in their process of respiration. So we can grab those electrons and we move them across a circuit and produce DC power. 
But because electricity production is directly related to respiration, the more electrons we move away from the bacteria, the faster we move them, which relates to a higher current, mm-hmm. actually forces those bacteria to breathe faster. So because <laughs> we make them breathe faster, that means that they are eating faster. And that's what drives treatment rate. So more electricity means faster treatment rate. Yeah. Then we can we can use that current, that power, and trickle charge a battery pack, and then we can offset some of the power demand of our system by running that uh, equipment off of the battery pack. Now, we work with really high-strength organic loads, and um, that means, you know, what, what you would typically see in a sewer, anywhere from 300 to 400 milligrams per liter of chemical oxygen demand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we deal with concentrations that range from 10,000 milligrams per liter up to 150,000 milligrams per liter. And this is typically just sugar, highly concentrated sugar in in most cases, right? But there's a lot of it. And so the alternative to to using our systems would be hold and haul. Um, So the the facility has to capture this wastewater, pay a third party to haul it off-site where they can discharge it to a private property or to landfill, depends on where they're at, or anaerobic digestion, but still, anaerobic digestion has trouble with dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of milligrams per liter. So there's still a dilution factor that typically has to happen. Plus, at the volumes we're dealing with, so we really deal in the small volume, you know, side of things. So um, 150,000 gallons a day, right? So super small mm-hmm. compared to what a utility is going to deal with. Also very small to what an anaerobic digester from a capital expenditure perspective, makes sense to employ, right? So um, we fit where anaerobic digestion just doesn't make monetary sense um, and uh, and may have challenges in a production environment that has variability in flow or concentration. And then also, um, uh, you know, just the just the high intensity of organic would, would cause problems for, for methanogenesis. I think the listener base generally knows what anaerobic digestion is, but could you just okay. give us a real quick thumbnail on that, please? For sure. Yeah, so anaerobic digestion um, is a wonderful technology. It's been in, been in use for decades, um, and it also employs a microbial process, uh, but it operates mostly in batch. And so uh, anaerobic digestion selects for uh, methanogens specifically to convert, you know, the organics, uh, break down the high concentration organics, and then ultimately fix carbon dioxide into methane. Then you can grab that methane, um, capture it, use it in a process of cogeneration to make heat and electricity, or you can inject that methane into a natural gas line. There's a variety of ways to do it. So it's a nice way to do direct energy recovery on site while you're treating your wastewater. But the tricky thing about anaerobic digestion is that um, you know, it usually operates best in a very fixed temperature profile. So the mm-hmm. hotter, the better. Um, and any perturbations that um, you know occur within pH mixing, concentration flows, changes in nutrients can really cause havoc in that process. And when an AD you know may take 15 to 40 days per batch right to to treat, you definitely don't want any problems to happen. And so. 
what BET does is, is takes that wastewater and we treat it in hours relative to what takes 80 days to do. And we can handle the production environment variability because it's a fixed film system. Uh, so we can um, we can drain the system for a couple months and plug it back in when it's needed. And we see recovery within 24 to 48 hours. We can bleach it. It can handle cleaning products just fine. We don't like strong solvents. <laughs> so <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we don't like heavy metals, you know, copper, silver, at, at, you know, concentrations of like 5% per volume. That's a really high concentration. But, um, you know, things things that normally would be upsetting to anaerobic digestion, we can handle. It will decrease efficiency a little bit in our system, but it doesn't create a toxicity event that would take weeks or months to recover from. Right, right. Um, you also mentioned uh, the, up to 150,000 gallons a day. Is that is that the is that one of those uh, shipping you know quote unquote shipping container size systems? Or can you can you essentially string a bunch of these together to scale it to get more exactly. than? Yeah. So we string a bunch together to scale, but we've already strung a bunch together to scale to 150,000 okay. gallons a day. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, it, so it all depends. We we figure out how many containers and of what size are needed based on the customer requirement, right? So usually these streams that we're treating are already split streams. So um, you know things that they have they've already built in a calamity tank for, or um, or no, it's going to be a problem, and so we can help come in and on the design side and set up a system. But essentially, right, we need to know. What is the total volume? Um, the concentrated stream is actually best for us. So our systems work most efficiently when we have the highest loading of organic. So, you know, if a customer says, all right, I've got 8,000 milligrams per liter COD I need to get rid of, our, our you know, response back will be, well, can you concentrate that to be higher? <laughs> because we actually want a smaller volume but higher concentration, and that makes the whole system much more efficient mm -hmm. and a much smaller footprint. So we need to know those volumes. We need to know the concentration we're starting with and what quality we need to get it to. And then we figure out, um, you know, how many containers and how many reactors in that container uh, are, are required. All right. What, so let, let's talk about some environmental benefits. Uh, you've, you've kind of hit, you know, hinted around the edges at, at them. So what, when, when you're talking to a customer, what are the environmental benefits you're going you're gonna to highlight? Well, you know, from a sustainability perspective, um, you know, we can enable, uh, you know, we, we take the, the highest strength waste and make it more manageable, right? So if that customer already has a treatment plant on site that is just costing them a lot of money, you know, say um, they're using some form of aeration uh, to, to take their high load streams and then they're generating a lot of sludge, we can set up shop, uh, reduce the load that goes into the aeration uh, basin or MBR, um, you know, reducing the amount of energy required to operate that system and also reduce the amount of sludge that's produced or has to be hauled off-site and managed otherwise. Um, you know, from a perspective of, you know, if they were holding and hauling, right, um, that that eventually will go away. Um, that, and so, you know, that that will pose a problem for, first, how do we get rid of this wastewater? It can't go to sewer. Uh, so there has to be some way of dealing with this in a cost-effective way. So, 
Um, we can avoid the Holden Hall and the land application of these really high-strength wastewaters, which, of course, is, is beneficial for a lot of reasons, um, decreasing the carbon footprint on transport, decreasing the, you know, the, the carbon load that we're putting into soils and nitrogen load as well, um, and you know, making that land more, more usable uh, for other applications, especially if it's not going to a landfill. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits, um, and then also, you know, from a customer perspective, th that you know may be interested in in moving toward a zero liquid discharge. Uh, you know, we can help enable uh, the process to 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 flow more cost effectively. Um, so you know, we take the the bigger burden up front, and hopefully, everything that's installed after us uh, can work more efficiently uh, with less maintenance and more cost effectively. Awesome. Uh, what, you mentioned trickle charge and batteries. How much, you know, uh, electricity are you actually producing in a, in a typical installation? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not like anaerobic digestion. Um, but, you know, because we are continuous flow, right, we're just doing that trickle charge, um, our goal is to be net neutral, Right. So we don't want the customer to have to pay an energy bill to run our system. Right. We want to be able to be fully neutral. But that's dependent on the, the stream that we're treating. So, you know, what comes into us is our chemical energy that we have to convert into electrical energy. Um, you know, theoretically, we can only get about 30 percent of that to convert into DC power. Right. So the higher strength that we work with, that means the more power we're going to get out of it. Of course, in practice, right, we're only between 10 and 20 percent efficient. Um, so you know, that's going to decrease the amount of power that, that we can generate. Um, if, we're, if we're talking about a more dilute waste stream, then you know, the power recovery is, is pretty low. So maybe we can offset about 50 percent of the power demand. But I'll give you just a you know, case study. So a uh, 10,000 gallon a day system, uh, starting with a COD of 100,000 parts per million, uh, knocking that down to 5,000, so it's a you know 95% removal. It takes nine hours uh, hydraulic residence time through three 40-foot containers, and will generate around 360 kilowatt hours in a day, which is just a little bit positive. Um, you know, the customer can charge a cell phone or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the most part, you know, it's it's really just trying to keep ourselves neutral. Okay. Uh, in, in terms of usage and what what's driving uh, implementation, let's talk about that. So you've mentioned food and beverage, high organic uh, uh, waste streams. Uh, are there are there regulatory or environmental trends that you see out there that are um, uh, hindering or helping uh, adoption of of the BET technology? Well, because we do act as an industrial pretreatment, the permitting issues are a little bit easier for us. So, you know, we, we can fall under an existing permit if they've got a wastewater treatment system already in play. Um, however, in those cases where we are truly distributed, so we're working with a brewer, um, Joshua Tree Brewery, who is the first brewery to set up shop outside of Joshua Tree National Park out here in Southern California. And, um, you know, he's tied to septic. And so the, the water basin said, well, you can't discharge your, you know, your, your brewery effluent into septic. 
So we, we have been working with um, the Water Basin and San Bernardino County and the oversight engineers to try and get the system fully Alert permitted to operate Chrome. in these situations where distributed treatment is required. Um, and we're working with partner technologies to actually take it down to a discharge level so that the, the, the BOD and, um, and total suspended solid hits, you know, 30 milligrams per liter starting at 30,000 of BOD and then the total nitrogen being 10 milligrams per liter or less, all in one little package plant, right? So we have to prove this out to the basin and the county and, and then, you know, get go through the official permitting. But the, the bummer about it is that the permit that we get in San Bernardino County isn't going to apply to San Diego County yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or to Los Angeles County or to Napa. Um, and so, you know, from a regulatory perspective, it is challenging with a new technology and as a new company uh, to be able to move through the regulatory space expediently, you know, to be able to, to really offer distributed treatment. Now, so that's why we focused, you know, starting more on the industrial pretreatment side from that regulatory space. Um, regulations that help us uh, really come into play, especially in, in, in agriculture here in California. Um, there was a Senate bill that passed in 2016 that is requiring all of livestock producers and, and dairies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030. And so, of course, you know, the cow produces these emissions, but the legumes produce a lot of emissions. And and that's also responsible for majority of the smell. And so, um, you know, their anaerobic digestion has a 50% fail rate in agriculture applications, as reported by the USDA. And um, and that's because, you know, you need, you need really skilled operators to, to handle these systems, even the most simplest ones. So we offer, you know, treatment as a service and can come out and help address these lagoons. Our longest running uh, field demonstration actually is at a pig farm uh, here in Southern California. And so, you know, we're, we're looking forward to being able to, to help out in the agricultural space once these regulations do start to come into effect and there's more subsidies to help farmers take advantage of new technologies to address the issue. Yeah. Are, is, is it primarily uh, California that you're, you're operating in or are you, you expanding geographically beyond that? We have installations in uh, Hawaii, uh, Tennessee, uh, a few here in California, and then we're we're talking to customers all over the country. We also have an installation in Tijuana, Mexico. All right. Uh, so let me ask you this: is uh, is the geographic region uh, is it is it weather dependent at all? I mean, are, are there other issues that that different climates can mm-hmm. affect how it, how the system operates? For sure, it is a biological system, right? So we have a temperature range that is best. Um, so what we do is in our, you know, the containerized systems, we have uh, essentially HVAC built in. So we can, we can deal with temperature fluctuations outside by, you know, maintaining uh, a good environment inside. But we can also tolerate greater fluctuations than most biological systems. So we just uh, anywhere between 10 and 55 degrees C, right, is um, uh, is, is workable for us. We've, we've demonstrated that the system can still work even below 10C. It's slower, 
um, but it's, it still does the job. So we, you know, if we can just keep within that range, then we, we see pretty consistent efficiency and removal. Um, hotter is better. Bugs like it warm. <laughs> <laughs> what's too What's too hot? Because I know that that in in helping out municipalities in their with their sewer utilities, we we typically will insert at the request of at the engineers, um, like you know max max discharge of 140 degrees Fahrenheit into the sewer system, mm-hmm. uh, or you can't uh, have a continuous discharge that raises you know the temperature of the treatment plant too high where it actually is bad for the bugs, right? So what, what, are, right. what are those temperature parameters? Yeah, so we max out about that, that same space, right? So 140 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. Um, once you get beyond that, so, I mean, we got lots of bacteria in the human body. That is a wonderful temperature for bacteria <laughs> to thrive. But once you exceed that temperature, then they start to get angry. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and that's true, you know, in, in any environment. There are bugs, of course, that... You know these hyperthermophiles that that live in the ocean vents and do wonderful things, but um, they don't do well in wastewater treatment systems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so if I'm uh, in the food and beverage industry or some other industry with with high organic waste strength, uh, what are the questions I should be asking you about uh, w- whether this system is right for me? Yeah. So, really, it's um, you know questions we'll ask them is is that uh, what is the volume, right? So we we're not going to make financial sense if they've got a volume to treat that is greater than 150,000 gallons a day. Uh, what is the concentration of what we have to treat and composition as well? Um, uh, you know, the composition does make a difference in, in efficiency. So typically, you know, first customer discussion, if they have any data they can share, that's great. We'll take a look at that. Uh, but ideally, if it's a sample we haven't tested before, an industry we haven't worked with before, you know, we'll, we'll for free send a test kit. They just send us five gallons back. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a full analysis, water chemistry workup, uh, let them know what the report looks like, you know, from, from our side, and then give them the sim ballpark in terms of, of cost. So we, we operate solely on OPEX. Uh, so it's a, it's a service model. Uh, and the equipment is essentially, you know, part of the service plan. Uh, we provide a performance guarantee based on the discharge requirement for the customer, uh, provide all of the service, and we're, we're doing this, um, you know, uh, partially on-site and partially remotely because we're always real-time recording voltage off of every reactor that we have in the field. We know that if voltage falls below baseline threshold that there could be an issue uh, upcoming, so we can troubleshoot that remotely. Uh, figure out exactly which reactor you know needs that maintenance. Then we can call boots on the ground. Everything's very modular, racked up on something similar to servo racks, so you can bypass the problematic reactor. Uh, rest of the system stays running. You do the maintenance that you got to do, get everything you know back in motion, and plug it back in. Takes anywhere from half an hour to an hour, depending on what was needed to do. Wow! So we provide that service um, as well as the reporting to the customer um and so they can they can have you know real-time performance data as to how things are are working on their site uh you know they see the same alarms that we do so you know everybody is it's very transparent as to how the system is working um so if you know we would we would um work with them you know to size the system appropriately 
based on their need, their volume, their concentration and requirement on discharge and, uh, and go from there. Where do you see kind of bet in, in, you know, the near, you know, three to five years, what, what's, what's kind of the, the, the growth curve? Well, you know, we are, we are starting to scale fairly rapidly right now. And so, you know, the goal is, uh, really to be able to, uh, to, to help, you know, uh, we were just at Weftech in Chicago and, and had some wonderful conversations, uh, with utility operators and smaller towns that have, you know, a, a, a burgeoning craft brewery scene going on and this new distilleries and, you know, that's all great, but it's really creating havoc for their wastewater treatment plant. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so they're, they're interested in seeing the specifications on what we can provide to, you know, go to their brewers and distillers and say, Hey guys, you know, can you, can you put this in play? Um, and so, you know, working, you know, from a government level or city level kind of in that space. So, um, you know, understanding, you know, where, where folks are exceeding their discharge permit levels and how we can help, um, you know, both the city, you know, uh, in keeping their their systems working most efficiently with the customer and reducing their costs in wastewater management. Um, and so, you know, we we hope to to really be a, a leading provider of pretreatment for for food and beverage industrial customers. Orana, you've been just absolutely fantastic. I love talking to people who are smarter than me because I feel uh, like I gain a lot of in, insight and, and information through this process. But uh, what, what kind of what's your leave behind message? Yeah. So, you know, in, in exploring the water space, you know, so we, we work specifically with, with food and beverage customers now, but um, the goal really how we started, how I started the research and, and ultimately how we want to end and, um, or, you know, I shouldn't say end, I should say <laughs> expand. Um, but ultimately where we want to go is, uh, you know, sanitation and water for all. So this this concept that we have with that um, provides a great value proposition to, to uh, industrial customers now. But as we are able to scale in our production and drive down our cost of goods, uh, the ultimate goal is to be able to provide um, – units that can either replace a septic or operate as on-site sanitation that can operate without a sewer grid, without an energy grid, and provide sanitation and ultimately water reuse with partner technologies in areas that need it the most. And so, you know, one of the, one of the big messages that I have um, totally embraced in, in, in my career in the water space is one water. Right. And that's very true here in Southern California, where we're importing a majority of our water is it's very silly to import 80 percent of our water demand, treat it, you know, use it once, treat it and then discharge it to the ocean. That yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> so right. but but the public perception on reusing wastewater is still, um, you know, uh, it's still very negative. And so, you know, the message that I would love for everybody to take away is that it's all one water and every drop of water that you use has been used billions and billions and billions of times before. And so water reuse and water recycling is already happening. We're just localizing it. And yeah. so when you get into distributed systems and more on-site treatment, even industrial pretreatment to some degree where, you know, if we are fitting into a zero liquid discharge, that water is going to be reused on site. So 
I would love for everybody to, to start thinking about it's just one water and, um, you know, and encouraging more water reuse uh, as these technologies are now available to make it very safe um, and it's all recycled. Sure. Terrific. Well, that's, that's a, a great thought. Uh, Oriana, for, for those who want to find out more about you, for find out more about AquaCycle, where can they go to get that information? You can find us at AquaCycle.com, and that's A-Q-U-A-C-Y-C-L.com. There's no E on the end. Uh, <laughs> it's good thing you spelled it. Good thing you spelled it. <laughs> and uh, you can find out more about the technology, uh, where we're installed, different industries that we apply to, and you can send us a note through the website as well. Awesome. Well, Oriana, thank you again. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us. And uh, thanks so much. And have a great week. Have a great day, a great year. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, David. Take care. You bet. Bye. Well, I told you Oriana was going to be great, didn't I? Um, I hope you enjoyed that inter- interview with Oriana Brechker, founder and CEO of AquaCycle. She was absolutely fantastic. Well, tell me what you liked about that interview. You can go to the show notes for this um this interview at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one five seven. Leave a comment there. You can also email me at David at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me at DTM one nine nine three, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And uh, again, please do me a favor, please rate or rev- and review the podcast on Apple podcast, Stitcher, tune in any, any podcast directory that you're listening on would really appreciate uh, your support in that nature. Uh, you can also sign up for the water values newsletter, go to the It's pretty self-explanatory after that. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.